chapter 4. So the book of Jonah is short, but it's got a lot in it. And if there's one thing I've learned about reading Jonah over the last several months, it's that Jonah, if we read scripture and we don't do it properly, we end up focusing on Jonah and how bad he was. And then we go, man, look how bad I am. And no doubt we can draw that from the passage, but we also need to look at God. And really, we probably ought to look at God first. Because what we learn through the book of Jonah, though we can definitely see that Jonah was a failure, we learn that hopefully as you read your Bibles, you, you see that uh, the Bible is not about a bunch of character studies. Like, be like David. No, don't be like David. Good grief. You know, be like Jonah. No, don't be like Jonah. Good grief. Um, I try to think of some of the other characters in the Bible that you, people go, hey, you know, you got to be like this person. But I think the main theme of the Bible is not the heroes of the Bible, although there are many children's Bibles that say, read about the heroes of the Bible, but it's actually about the hero in the Bible, which is Jesus, God himself. He's the hero, he's the deliverer, and no matter how good that the characters were in the Bible for a season and then they failed, God was always bigger than their failures. And so we see chapter 3 of Jonah where Jonah has finally come around. He's been given a second chance, and he's been obedient. But in his obedience, I want to point out to you this morning that if we stopped at the end of chapter 3, our tendency would be to go, hey, be like Jonah. But all we see is the outward appearance of what Jonah has done. Jonah has obeyed. That's a big piece of it. But he also doesn't have the heart of God. And that's why I think chapter 4 is there, so that we don't worship Jonah. We look at chapter 4, and God reveals to us a little bit more deeply that Jonah was a failed, and a, a, not a failed, he, he was successful, but he was a human being, so he wasn't perfect. And I think if there's anything we learned from last week, it's that God uses imperfect servants. If you want to be a servant of God, don't expect yourself to be perfect but we can at least be obedient to what God, God's given us to do. But more than the message that God sent Jonah to give, he cares about the messenger. He cares deeply about us as his messengers. And we might look at Jonah and say, you know, he was an Israelite man, he was a Hebrew, and he was sent to the Ninevites. So he's a missionary, right? But everyone is a missionary. In Christ, we are all missionaries. I'm not the only one. I'm a missionary. I've been called here, but I've also been called to U.S. Tool. I've also been called to my family. I've also been called to the guy at the gas station that I meet. You know, it, it's, it's how God works. He brings people into your life, and nothing is a coincidence. We're all missionaries. And so we see this missionary Jonah. He's been obedient. He goes to the Ninevites. He walks midway into the city, and then he says, in 40 days, you're going to be smoked. That's what he says. I don't see any graciousness in him. Now, he says what God tells him to say. Don't get me wrong. But he goes in there, and then he skedaddles. He doesn't stick around. He doesn't try to help them, which stinks because right after he tells them this, they all repent. Every single one of them puts on sackcloth, which is a outward appearance of mourning. They weep. They stop production. They stop industry. They put sackcloth and ashes on their animals. You know, they, they stop their work. They, even the king, 
it makes a point to say in chapter 3, he gets off of his throne, which is his rightful place, he takes off of his robe, and he puts on garments of mourning. And then he makes a decree, everyone will mourn. We've been given a warning, let's do something about it. God gives warnings not to, you know, so many people, and I probably said this last week, but so many people that are against God, they say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's just a meanie, he just beats up on people, he kills them, he judges them, and there's no grace. But this God of the New Testament, he makes more sense to me. But God didn't have to warn them. He gave them 40 days to repent. That means that he was allowing time for them to turn around from their sinful ways. God warns us because he knows the things that we practice that are sin will destroy us and hurt us. Thank you. So in chapter 4, well, let's start in verse 10 of chapter 3. It says, after they repented, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and he relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. He did not destroy them. He did not judge them. So you would think as a prophet, his biggest desire would be that he would present a message and that people would respond positively. But notice verse 1 of chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Jeremiah the prophet was known as the weeping prophet. He preached for years, and no one ever received his message and repented. He got no response. Imagine if Billy Graham did all these tent revivals and never had one convert. He wouldn't have kept going. Well, I can't say that. He might have. God calls you to do something. You better keep doing it. But Jonas, it says, the entire city of Nineveh repents. That great, that huge, that enormous city repents, and he's displeased, and he gets angry. Exceedingly angry. It says, so he prayed to the Lord and said, now I would say to you that Jonah's prayer is a prayer of complaint. He's complaining. It says, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said was when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. He's complaining about these things. He's complaining that God is loving He's complaining that he's gracious, that he's long-suffering. How quickly he's forgotten that his own life was spared because God relents judgment. He was swallowed by a fish, brought back up on land. He has a new lease on life. And yet when other people receive that same new lease, that second chance, he complains to God and we find out that one of the reasons he fled from the presence of the Lord is if you can do such a thing is because he knew God would forgive them. And he was mad about it. So we have this prophet, this mouthpiece of God. He's been given this 
word to say to these people. They respond positively, and then he complains that they do. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. They've repented and you, did, you relented? Just kill me. I would rather die. And I don't think this is one of those pretty things like, oh, Lord, just kill me. I think he's yelling at the sky. Just kill me. How can you forgive these people? He's so unforgiving. His heart is so dark. And he does not reflect the heart of God. God's not mad at people that are in sin. Do you guys know that? He's not angry with them. He's broken over them. God's not mad at the guy, at the, God is not mad at, at women who have had an abortion. Did you know that? Do we communicate that to people? God's not mad at homosexuals. He died for them. He sent his son to die in their place so that they could have life, even though all their works, the wages of their sin, is death. God loves people beyond what we can even think or, or, or understand. He just does. But as Christians, how have we communicated the gospel? They need to change. They need to turn or burn. And we don't love them. And it starts with us. It doesn't start with... Culture will never... Culture will never have the heart of God. They can't. They don't know God. But we do. We're responsible to reflect His heart towards sin. And so... Jonah's heart is not this way. So then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? I don't think he was yelling at him either. This is just my, my thoughts, but I, I think he just listened to him yell. He went off, and here's Jonah just screaming at the sky. And God goes, is it right for you to be angry? He wants him to think. He poses these questions to get Jonah out of his own perspective because we see things from down here, and God's like in a drone. He sees the whole big picture. And so it says, he says there, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? So Jonah doesn't answer him. He goes outside of the city, verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city. He sat on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He wanted to see what was going to happen. He left. He did not continue to tell them more about God, even though he knew it. He left the city, sat on a hill, not weeping over them, but just like, okay, let's see what happens, Lord. He just kind of kicks back. He builds himself a shelter. He's going to watch him. Now, I will also say this. As a prophet of God, I think part of this, part of the reason that he didn't want to tell them, and part of the reason that he didn't want to tell them because he knew they might repent and that God might relent is because as a prophet, it says in Leviticus, if you prophesy something and it doesn't come to pass, you might get stoned to death. If he says, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you, and they repent and God relents and doesn't destroy them, they might go, I thought you said he's going to destroy us. And then by the Old Testament law, they could stone him but he was only thinking about himself. These people aren't going to stone him. They're going to go, hey, thanks for warning us. But his own people, the Israelites who hated the Ninevites just like he did, they might stone him. They might shut him down. How dare you let God forgive them as if we can stop God, right? 
So he tells them this message. They repent. He goes up and sits on a hill, and he plants himself. Now look at this. God loves Jonah very deeply. He wants to get through to him. Jonah's mad about his graciousness and his kindness, and yet God continues to be patient with him. I'm not like that with people that don't get me. I don't like to explain myself. I don't like to repeat myself. Just take what I got to say and trust me. And I'm not God. I'm not always trustworthy. But God, who has every right to say, hey, Jonah, if you don't get it, you can turn or burn. He doesn't. He's patient with him, and he responds to him. So after Jonah goes up on the the hill, verse 6, the Lord God prepared a plant. Now notice this. All throughout the book of Jonah, all these things that happened, God prepared a fish. And then God prepares the people. And then God prepares Jonah. And then God prepares a plant. And he's going to speak to God through this plant. God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. He's sitting out in the heat in the desert and he's up on top of this hill and the sun's beating down on him and he's just sitting there. And God grows up this plant and expresses grace to him by covering his head. Now, I'm not Jonah and I don't know how old he was, but I don't have no hair up here. And I don't have no hat on. I'm getting like the blisters that come around your hair, and it's like in summertime. If I don't wear a hat, it's over. And who likes to wipe that grease stuff all over your head to make sure you don't get a sunburn? So I just wear a hat. But Jonah didn't have a hat on. And I've been in the Judean wilderness. I've been in this area of the world. It's very dry. It's very hot. It's very sunny. There's no... If you're in the shade, it's many degrees different, like here in the summertime. And so... He's given shade. The Lord God prepared a plant. This plant was like a gourd. You ever grow like zucchini squash? You know, you got to place it just right in your garden because otherwise just the leaves take up the whole garden and then you get a few things underneath it. So you got to spread them out. Well, the leaves are huge. They're perfect for shade. But at the same time, if you cut away at the stem a little bit, that leaf just withers really quickly. That's what it is. It's, the plant is a gourd. And so he's given this gourd plant, the leaves come up over him, they shade him, they protect him from his misery, and Jonah was grateful for the plant. He was grateful, he's thankful for the first time we've seen him in a long time. And then it says, as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. So God prepared the plant, and then he also prepared the way to destroy the plant, this worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose the next day that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished that he was dead again. He wished death for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live. He's a little bit emotional. He's a little bit brash. You know, he's, he's like my four-year-old daughter. If something little is wrong, she's like, oh! She was building a spaceship last night. She has this big box. Is what our car seat came in for Judah. And that thing, we got some miles on it. It's getting flimsy. So she sets it up on top of one of those exercise trampolines. Everybody's seen one of those. It's the one where you go, I'm going to get in shape, so I'm going to get a tiny trampoline for my house, which I don't get. But our children love it, so it's good. So you set the box on top of it, and she's climbing in it, and that's her spaceship. So if she starts telling a story about a spaceship, we don't really have one at the house. It's actually a rocket ship made out of a box. And she sets it on there. She puts a blanket over it. 
and then she wants to get in it, but by the time she puts all the blankets on the top, it falls over. She did this three times, and she gets angry every time. She's like me. She's impatient as all get out, angry about stuff that, like, stop doing it that way. It's not going to work. If you've done it three times and it hasn't worked, guess what's going to happen the fourth time? I'm no Nostradamus. So I finally looked at her and was like, you're doing it wrong. She goes, oh, I got an idea. And then she went at it again. So she's, you know, she, you can't stop her. But here we have Jonah, the shade's taken from his head. He wishes death on himself brashly again, which God can give him. And then God said to Jonah, the same question again, except he says it about the plant. Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? Really? So before we go into the next part of the passage, I want to turn with me, you to turn with me to 2 Samuel in chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. You ever need perspective from God? And you're in the middle of your situation, you're like, I don't understand what God's trying to do here, but I'm frustrated, and I just, I don't get it. I don't see. I, you look at something so long, you need somebody else to come in and kind of go, hey, you're looking at this from the wrong direction. In 2 Samuel 12, David has committed sin. He has, uh, he has lied, he has laid with um, his neighbor's wife. He's committed a sin against uh, some of the basic commandments. He's slept with Bathsheba, producing conception and a child. And after that, he tries to hide it. So he ends up, because he can't get Uriah to go into his wife and try to cover up that it's his kid, he ends up killing his neighbor to hide the fact that he slept with his neighbor's wife. And um, for a long time, he never really repents of this. Uh, Uriah dies in the battle. Um, Bathsheba has no husband now, so he graciously takes her in as his own wife. And then as a result of that, they continue on. Uh, she's conceived, takes care of her during the whole pregnancy. And then it's a year later, the child's been born. And Nathan the prophet comes to, the, to, to David. In chapter 12, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock, this rich man did, and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. He's shown him hospitality. He's going to make him a feast. But instead, he took the poor man's lamb, the only lamb he had, prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David is a shepherd. This is going to make David mad. He's been a shepherd. He knows what it's like to raise lambs. He knows all the time and effort it takes to invest in these animals, and he knows what it's like to care about them to the point that David had at one point killed lions and, and wolves to keep them away from his herd. So he, he relates with this man with only one lamb, and David responds to Nathan. His anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He's righteous, right? He's going to take care of things. He's going to be just. And what does he say? 
and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb that because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then David, excuse me, Nathan looks at David and says, you're that man. You're the man in the story. This wasn't a real story. This was for you to see perspective from God's eyes. He says, you are the man, which every guy likes to hear, by the way. You're the man, but not in this case. You're the man that did this. This is the worst you're the man that any guy's ever received. You are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So, David did not see his sin as sin. And then Nathan comes in and tells this story, getting him all riled up. And then he says, you've done this. You're this man. You're the man who's taken someone's ewe lamb that he cared about. You have all these wives, which is never, in, by the way, in the Bible, kind of condoning the fact that he had multiple wives. It just was what it was. But he says, you had all this. I gave you the kingdom and you took this man's wife as if you didn't have enough. You weren't content with what I gave you. So I say all that because it seems that's what God is doing in the eyes of Jonah. He's getting ready to show him a parable to, to bust down Jonah's wrong perspective of the situation to show him God's perspective of the situation. So he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Verse 9. And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. You know, like, I've looked at my daughter before, and I've said, you know, are, why are you so angry about this? Because it's frustrating me, you know, like, there's no reason to it. He's just upset. He's angry. He's got reasons, I'm sure, but the Lord said, verse 10, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor did you make it grow. It came up in a night, and it perished in a night. You didn't even have any, he didn't invest in this plant at all. It just showed up. He, had no, he, had, he didn't have any skin in the game, as they would say. And then he says, and should I not pity Nineveh, this huge city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? A lot of teachers in here, a lot of parents in here. What age do you learn to discern between your left and your right hand? I don't think my four-year-old's quite there yet. Yeah, maybe five. But my point is, is like, God cares about not just the Ninevites who are evil, but he cares about their children. He cares about those that don't know any better. And there's an age of accountability. There's a time where we learn the difference between right and wrong. And Jonah's heart is to care about only about Jonah and how it affects him. And yet God says to Jonah, what about the 120,000 people down there that don't know the left hand from the right? What about them? I love them. I care about them. I know there's wickedness. I know that your people won't like you, but I don't care because I love those 120,000 people. It's worth it. 
And so, and <laughs> this always has thrown me off a little bit. So I'm going to read verse 10 and 11 again. The Lord said, you have had pity on this plant for which you had not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which are more than 125, or excuse me, 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. <laughs> and that's where it ends. He says, and the cows, you know, and the livestock. God cares about animals, you know. Um, God cares about people more, though. But what I want to point out is that God cares about his creation. He cares about what he made. He said it was good. And so, um, why does it matter what Jonah's heart is like in all of this? Or I would ask the question and make it more personal. Why does it matter what our hearts are like? Does God want us just to obey his commands but not have his heart? I would submit to you that God wants us to do what's right, what's righteous in his sight, but he wants us to do it as an overflow of a heart that's wholeheartedly given to him. And I say that, and I'm going to turn to Numbers 20 with my final reference here. Numbers chapter 20. You guys all know about Moses. You all know about it, the Israelites. The Israelites were in slavery. Moses was sent as their deliverer to go into Egypt to plead with Pharaoh. God showed many miraculous signs and wonders. He brings them out of Egypt. He makes Passover a thing. He passes over the firstborn of all the Israelites because they trust in the blood of the lamb. He kills all the firstborn of the Egyptians to, to let them go. And then as they're leaving, he goes through this place until they get to the Red Sea and they feel hemmed in. And God miraculously parts the waters. And they walk through as if on dry land. And then as the Egyptians come in after them to chase them, God lets the water down and judges them, covers them with it. And then they wander, it says, in the wilderness for 40 years because of unbelief. They, they didn't go into the promised land. They didn't cross the Jordan. But while they're wandering, God's taking care of them. He provides manna and the dew of the morning. He provides manna for them every day, which means, what is it? Because it fell out of the sky. They were told to gather up a certain amount, and it was the bread of life in the desert because there was nothing to eat. They took some snacks from Egypt, but once they ran out of snacks in their little backpack, they had to trust the Lord for their bread. But what do you do about water in a desert? What do you do? You got to have something because if you, you can go a long time without eating, by the way, but you can't go nearly as long without water. You will die. Water in the desert equals life. And so as they're going through the desert, what happens is they come to a rock and the people start complaining against God. And so he tells Moses, I want you to strike this rock and out of it, I'm going to pour rivers of living water. So he strikes this rock and I will tell you today, that same rock still exists and water still comes out of it. The spring from the earth that God miraculously made in the desert. So he strikes the rock and out of it comes rivers of living water. Well, fast forward to Numbers chapter 20 because several years later, the same thing happens. The people start to complain again. And every time they complain, uh, their occupation becomes burying. People die. When you complain against God's provision, um, you end up missing out on God's provision and you die. And in Numbers chapter 20, it says, uh, the children of Israel 
the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So it's towards the end of their 40 years. Imagine if you had to spend 40 years in the wilderness with your family. None of you guys have complainers, but we do. And, uh, you know, it's like taking a long road trip. You're in the car. Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Now, in the first hour, you're thinking you're doing pretty good. You're like, no, we're not there yet. Just watch your movie. I know it's tough to have to watch a movie. I used to have to read books, get sick, and I wasn't a very good reader, and I'm not bitter about it. But now you got like this thing that's like an airplane, a jet airliner. It's got TV. It's got... Their, their seats have cup holders. You, our car's so big, we could put a potty seat in there. You know, like, we, we've got it good. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that. So they're, <laughs> but imagine 40-year road trip. They're on a 40-year walk, family walk, 40 years. And as they're at the end of it, they're complaining about something that God's provided for in the past. They're complaining about water. And Moses is done. He's 120 years old, by the way. He's old and crotchety in some ways, I'm sure. You know, he started this walk when he was 80. And now he's 120. He's like, good grief. And so he gets here, and it says, when there was no water, verse 2, for the congregation. Now this is 1.2 million-ish people. So the congregation was, you know. And so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. They, they start a coup. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. I wish we were dead. It'd be better. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Now you can imagine Moses going, I just did what God told me to do. Don't complain against me. Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink? So Moses and Aaron did the right thing. They left the people. They went to the presence of the assembly, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. There was a place where they would go and meet with God. This was their prayer closet. And they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod... This is the same rod that he used to part the Red Sea. You and your brother, Aaron, gather the congregation together and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water, and thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. He turns around, he's like, okay, I'm going to go be obedient. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Following instructions, they're doing well, right? And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! He starts yelling at them. He was not supposed to speak to the people. He was supposed to speak to the rock. And so as he does this, must we bring water for you out of this rock? As if God's angry with them. Verse 11, Then Moses lifted his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. So what am I reading this story to you for? God's will was done. Moses was told to do a thing. He did it wrong, and God blessed the people anyway. He provided for them water. 
Pretty cool, right? He provided for them water, but Moses did the wrong thing. He did not speak to the rock. He struck it. He was not supposed to strike it this time. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he said, because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Quick punishment. He says, hey, you did not consider me to be holy and righteous. You didn't trust me. And so I still bless them. They still have water. But you're going to be punished because you were supposed to be a type of Christ. Christ was struck at his first coming. That's how salvation came. If he didn't die in our place, there would be no salvation, there would be no forgiveness, there would be no blood for the forgiveness and the, the cleansing of sin. But now we don't have, he doesn't have to be struck anymore. He's not hanging on the cross anymore. He doesn't have to hang on the cross every week and we don't have to sacrifice him again. Once for all. Now we get to speak to the rock anytime we want and salvation comes forth for anyone who would believe in the name of Jesus, who would believe in his finished work on the cross. Moses gets angry with the people, misrepresents God, and he does not get to experience the joy of the Lord, which was going into the land that they'd been traveling to for 40 years. The 40-year walk through the wilderness did not land up where he was hoping for the whole time because one step of disobedience. Now, did Moses go to hell for that? No. But he had to be punished because God had to make an example of him. You do not disobey the Lord and misrepresent him to 1.2 million people and get away with it. He needs to be holy in the sight of people. Jonah missed it. Jonah had the opportunity to hallow the, the heart of the Lord, to trust it, to represent the Lord to the people. What we know about the Ninevites is just a few years later, they turned back to their wicked ways and God had to judge them. But I always wonder what would have happened if Jonah would have stuck around instead of leaving and complaining, if he would have stuck around and loved them like God loved them and expressed the heart of God to them, not caring what his Hebrew brothers thought of him, not caring whether or not he'd have to give up his life to serve these people that he didn't like, but instead being willing to lay down his life for these people like that's the heart of God. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a sacrifice. And Jesus said himself, if anyone would gain his life, he must give it up for my sake. And if anybody would lose his life for my sake, he could gain it for eternity. If Jonah would have gave up his heart and and let his heart be changed by the heart of God, he would have actually gotten to experience and see the fruit of his ministry. He would have gotten to go into the land of promise, hang out with the Ninevites, see their lives transformed, and just be able to just praise the Lord for his goodness and his faithfulness. He never got to see any of that. And I think that's why the book begins so quickly, because what we see is that Jonah never repented. Jonah never repented that we know of. I hope that that's not the case on the other side of heaven. I hope we get to go ask him like, hey, you know, how'd that go? What happened afterwards? But until then, I think it's a warning to us. It's important that we do the things God's given us to do, but that we do it with his heart. 
that we love people that disagree with us currently, that we build relationships with people that don't trust the Lord, that are against Him, that we have conversations with them about the things they don't understand. Why does God kill people in the Old Testament? Hey, if you haven't thought about that as a Christian, you should. It's important for us to be able to answer that question because if we don't, nobody else will. So let's pray.